0: The Hubble Deep Field is one of the most iconic images in all of astronomy. It's this time when they spent thousands of hours with the Hubble Space Telescope, staring at a seemingly empty spot in the universe. And what they saw were tens of thousands of galaxies out to the very limits of what Hubble could see. And of course, it's natural to wonder when is the James Webb Space Telescope gonna do its version of the Hubble Deep Field? It is so much faster, so much more powerful than anything Hubble can do, and already the initial tests that astronomers have been doing have shown just what is capable with a fraction of the time. A James Webb Space Telescope deep field is kind of inevitable. So my guest today is Dr. Viraj Pandya. He worked on the various flavors of the Hubble deep field, has been working on a lot of really interesting galactic surveys using James Webb, examining galaxies, He's, on one hand, done some really interesting research into the shapes of galaxies seen in the early universe. They're not what you'd think, not the grand spirals or giant elliptical galaxies that we see around us today, but they were more like tubes, as he calls them, breadsticks. And this was surprising and is sort of a really interesting field of study so far. We spanned about half of the interview just talking about what he has discovered with James Webb so far. And then we shift gears and talk about what does the future hold for giant surveys? When will we get that deep field? And I think you'll find that part of the conversation as well, really fascinating, and get you pretty excited about what the future holds. All right, here's my interview with Dr. Viraj Panjian. Viraj, if you were to sort of describe the typical galaxy in our
1: neighborhood, what would we see? That's a great question, Fraser. So the typical galaxy in our neighborhood, it's a a spiral galaxy. So I have this analogy that I make uh, inspired by uh, working in New York City, where if you think of galaxies as coming in terms of uh, three different um, dominant shapes, uh, you can think of uh, elliptical galaxies that are intrinsically round in 3D. So these are like um, balls of dough that are perfectly round. And then you take that ball of dough and you flatten it along one axis and you get the greatest thing in the universe, you get a pizza. And so the pizzas are what dominate uh, in the local universe. Uh, and sometimes you can have pizzas with like balls of dough in the middle that we call bulges. Um, these are, these are um, uh, the most common. And as you go to like the most massive nearby galaxies, they start to preferentially become like balls of dough, just like pure round, roundish 3D balls of stars. And those, I mean,
0: I really do like that pizza analogy. I may I may borrow that. Um, but but this idea, I mean, when we think about the Milky Way, I mean, we're not just this flattened disk. We are surrounded by this cloud of satellite galaxies, many that we have ingested. So if you sort of look closer at, at the various types, when you see this, the spirals, when you see the ellipticals. Do they have
1: similar kinds of clouds of satellite galaxies around them as well? Yeah, the Milky Way, our own galaxy, um, which which is, it's like a spiral with a small um, bulge in the center uh, and a bar uh, and, and of course, these spiral arms. But it's also surrounded by the swarm of like 60 little satellite galaxies. Uh, most of them, we say, are um, red and dead uh, in the sense that uh, most of them don't have any interstellar gas, the fuel for forming new stars. There's a handful, like the large and small Magellanic Clouds, uh, which are two of the biggest satellites of the Milky Way uh, that do um, have gas. They're forming new stars. Uh, and then if you look at other nearby galaxies, like Andromeda or you know, giant ellipticals, um, they also have their own satellite populations that are um, orbiting, as exactly you said, like in a, in a halo. Um, and that halo, you know, is made of both. It's predominantly, we think, made of dark matter, uh, and we don't know exactly what dark matter is, but we can in- infer its its presence um, uh, because uh, it affects the motions of the stars uh, in in galaxies. I, and that, I I actually
0: didn't know about that idea that that the satellite galaxies of the Milky Way are red and dead. That that they used up their Reserves of gas and dust for star formation before they got sucked into the the larger galaxy. And so it's a you know when we look at the structure of the Milky Way, thanks to, say, observations by Gaia, we see the streams of torn up satellite galaxies that joined us in the past. And so those ones, I'm assuming, did bring their gas and dust into the galaxy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's there's definitely like these two uh, regimes. So these like streams of stars like kind of strewn out like the Magellanic Stream. Um, These are the remnants of galaxies, satellite galaxies that couldn't survive. And they've been literally torn apart uh, because of the immense gravitational pull of the Milky Way's halo. Uh, But there's about 60 galaxies that are still like bound collections of stars, um, but they don't have Most of them don't have any gas to form new stars except for the LMC and the SMC. Yeah. Huh. That's really
0: interesting. Okay. Um sorry, I just rabbit holed there for a second, filled in a gap in my knowledge. Um so then as we expand our view out to you know, beyond the local group, looking at say the Virgo supercluster, galaxies that are in the tens of millions to hundreds of millions of, of light years away does this story change or do we just see kind of the same thing nearby?
1: Yeah. So as you go towards um, like nearby clusters of galaxies, uh, which are like, uh, you know, the New York cities of the universe where all the galaxies kind of hang out, something does change in the sense that as you go to groups and clusters of galaxies, you start to see many, many more red and dead galaxies and also many more elliptical type galaxies. Um, so it's kind of mind-blowing for me to think about, about it this way. But, you know, the Milky Way right now, okay, we're, we're in this local group. You know, we have the Andromeda, another nearby massive galaxy. We have the Triangulum galaxy. And then we have the smattering of satellites around the Milky Way, around the Andromeda galaxy, and Triangulum and scattered throughout the local group. But if you go to, say, the Virgo cluster or the Coma cluster, the satellites in the Coma cluster and the Virgo cluster many of them um, you can think of as like milky ways so imagine like a milky way mass galaxy being a satellite around a factor of you know 10 to 100 times more massive galaxy or hey and
0: so it's like one stage larger structure than what we have around the milky way it's like i don't know like exactly. moons are to planets planets are to suns and then in this yep. case spiral galaxies are to giant galaxy clusters.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And there's, there's a, you know, a standing puzzle, um, that, uh, when you go to these like large clusters of galaxies, a lot of the, the, the inhabitants, the, 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 the galaxies in these clusters, um, they don't form, uh, stars at the rate at which they would, if they were not in the cluster, like the Milky Mm. Way today. You know, it's not great at forming stars. It's kind of uh, average. We we call it a green valley galaxy, as opposed to like a blue star forming one or a red and dead elliptical. Um, but if you put the Milky Way in a cluster like Coma, it would be forming. It would it would not be forming stars. Uh, its gas would probably get stripped and.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. And so there the, clearly, there's this cycle going on at various scales. We see it in the dwarf galaxies that are around the Milky Way, and then you see the same thing, but just at the next level up with their interactions exactly. in these larger galaxy clusters. Okay. So as we look farther out then, say, we, you know we bring the Hubble Space Telescope online and we start to look out to the very limits of where Hubble can perceive galaxy structure, what do we see? And I guess how far away is that? and how or how far back in yeah. time is that?
1: Yeah. so Hubble, You know, in principle, it was was able to observe galaxies uh, back to, you know, a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, but its sensitivity wasn't as great as, of course, now the James Webb Space Telescope. But even with its, you know, despite that, it's, you know, it, it revolutionized our understanding of galaxy formation. And one of the things I like to point people to, which is kind of forgotten these days, I think, is in the mid 90s. Uh, When people started to, you know, create some of the first like proto Hubble deep fields, uh, they found that when they pointed at, you know, a relatively empty area patch of the sky, smaller than the full moon, um, they found that as you look at distant galaxies um, that existed maybe, you know, 10 billion years ago, uh, and including this includes galaxies that we think had the masses and star formation rates of like what we think the ancestor of our own Milky Way was. So a lot of these Milky Way progenitors that existed 10 billion years ago, Hubble found in the mid 90s and early 2000s, they were very linear looking. And as you started to approach the detection limit of the Hubble imaging at the time, you started to get dominated by these very linear looking structures, galactic structures. And there were lots and lots of you know propose explanations for this one is um maybe hubble is just not sensitive to you know detect uh like the rounder looking thing so if you imagine you have a spiral galaxy like the milky way right so you can see it from a variety of viewing angles right um and it turns out that if you look at a milky way like like a spiral galaxy edge on then it's it's gonna appear brighter so you're more likely to pick it up in your in your observations but if you take this like thin Disc, this thin Milky Way spiral type thing, and you put it face on, then the light is more diffuse and it actually has a lower what we call surface brightness, and so it's very likely that it'll you won't pick it up in your in your imaging. Um, so this was one idea back then that you know maybe we're seeing all of these elongated linear structures just because there's like a bias against detecting the face on ones.
0: And this is actually a really big problem in astronomy. I mean, we experience this when you walk outside and you look up at the night sky. You're seeing all these stars, and all of them are weirdos, right? There are almost no stars that you can see with your eyes outside, except for a couple of close ones, Alpha Centauri, things like that, that are just – the same kind of brightness as our as the sun, and definitely not the most common stars like the red the red dwarfs. What you see are stars with many times the mass of the sun, stars that are hundreds of light years away. Each one of them is a bizarre, rare, very bright thing. And so if you think as you look up in the sky and like that's normal, it's not normal. Like there's all these hidden stars that you don't see just because they're, they're so bright. And I know that this problem comes up a lot with – you know, it's like almost like survivorship. You guys have a t- have a term for this, right? But it's like survivorship bias. Like when you look in the field, That's you're right. seeing a bunch of stuff. It's biased towards the kinds of stuff that can be seen, and that can totally skew your results.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we call this a selection effect, or uh, in, right. in right. this particular yeah. case, yeah, surface brightness detection bias. Uh, yes, like what actually makes it into your sample of observed galaxies. And and I mean, there there are ways to quantify this. So you know, a lot of I think, you know, it's pretty standard. Like I've done this for my recent JWST paper and, you know, people have been doing this for, for as long as people have been studying galaxies. You know, you can, you can take your, the typical characteristics of your image or just take your image itself, the images you've taken with your telescope and you can inject fake galaxies into those images. Uh, and you know, their properties, you know where they are. Um, you can assign them various, pro- uh, different, you know, colors and, 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 uh, orientations and and brightnesses, and you can then run that kind of, you know, mock image through some detection pipeline to detect sources, to detect galaxies. And then you can, once you do that, you actually walk away with a better understanding of like, okay, here's the the limits of my data, the detection limits of my data. And and if I'm trying to draw conclusions about galaxies that are fainter than that limit, I should be very careful because I don't- I'm missing. I have severe biases, maybe.
0: Huh. And and, I mean, it feels like that should almost be like your instinct. When you're running up against the edge of what your telescope can do, you should assume by default that there are all kinds of selection biases going on there.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so so you got this hint that there were these strange linear-shaped galaxies were starting to appear more often the farther you looked back in time. JWST comes online. Now you're able to see even farther, even deeper. What do you see?
1: Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I used, uh, I worked with an amazing team of astronomers, a hundred people, uh, uh, and more actually, um, uh, this is a collaboration, it's an early release science collaboration, uh, for the James Webb space telescope known as SEERS, the cosmic evolution, early release science survey. Uh, Steve Finkelstein is the, is the PI one of my former mentors as well. Um, And uh, so, you know, we saw all these papers coming out in the first two years from JWST, um, which were convincingly showing that there were cases where Hubble had completely missed disk galaxies. Like, they just weren't even, they were just noisy images from Hubble. You couldn't make anything out. But then JWST imaging of the same patch of sky reveals all of these nice disks, including many face-on ones. Uh, And so there were a lot of papers about this and claiming that, uh, you know, the the fraction of galaxies that are classified as disks in Hubble imaging. Drops dramatically as you look further and further uh, uh, to larger distances. Um, But then the fraction of disk galaxies, according to James Webb imaging, it was at like the 40 to 50 percent level. Um so where where it was like less than maybe you know a percent or ten percent uh in in Hubble imaging, uh it was you know the disk fraction was forty to fifty percent, so I got very excited because you know I thought okay well well JWST has solved this puzzle where maybe it's detected all of these round you know face on discs that Hubble had missed, and we don't have a crisis you know maybe there's uh there's no there's no uh puzzle anymore. To explain these linear things, this, this overabundance of linear galactic structures. So I actually went in with the Sears team, and we actually, um, you know, characterized the, the, essentially, the distribution of the projected ellipticities of of all galaxies in the in the Sears JWST imaging. So what that means is you, you know you have, a, you have you have galaxies the, on the on the sky, you know, two D sky, they're projected, and you can essentially fit every galaxy with with some kind of ellipse, right? And then you can characterize every galaxy by the ratio of the short axis to the long axis of, of of its best fitting ellipse. That's called the projected axis ratio. And then for galaxies that are like at a similar distance from us and that have a similar mass or brightness, we can just do a simple counting exercise. We can just look at the distribution of that projected axis ratio, projected ellipticity. And if you – sorry,
0: go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I was just going to ask. So like if you <clears> – <throat> like you have done enough calculations for different kinds of galaxies so that when you see a certain shape in the sky, you're able to calculate what its orientation is compared to us as the observer. And then you can do that at scale. Like, You can see a whole bunch of galaxies in a field. Your computer algorithm can run through them all and go, this one's pointing this way, that one's pointing that way, this one, and so on, and be able to sort of yeah. do a giant survey quickly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And, and it, you know, this is a statistical exercise. I can say some more uh, later about, you know, ways to follow this up to get smoking gun measurements constraints on the orientations of individual galaxies. But, you know, when when we, when we measure the projected orientations, the projected shapes of these galaxies, uh, we have certain expectations so, you know, if we think that the universe is isotropic in terms of, you know, galaxies being randomly distributed throughout it and randomly oriented, um and and in our standard picture, right, if we think galaxies start out as spirals, as disks, then you should see disks from many different views, um and so you actually end up expecting a roughly uniform distribution of Galaxies with different axis ratios. You should see equal numbers of round ones and equal numbers of edge-on ones, like like you know, like thin lines. And we don't see that. Even with JWST, we don't see a uniform distribution. Instead, the distribution is very asymmetric, uh, and it's skewed heavily in favor of still like these these uh, elongated, linear-looking galaxies. Even with the improved sensitivity at JWST, and that's telling us that. You know, these early galaxies, like like the ancestors of the Milky Way that existed 10 billion years ago, they cannot all be like spiral galaxies, like pizzas. Um, and they also can't be balls of dough, which would preferentially show up actually looking round. No matter what you look at a ball of dough, it's going to look round in projection. So there's a there's actually another possibility that that my co-authors and I are advocating for. And this is um, the the, to complete the the New York City, you know, baked product analogy, right? We have dough balls. You have pizzas. Now take the pizzas and flatten them along one of the other two axes, and you get my other favorite thing in the entire universe. You get a breadstick.
0: <laughs>
1: right? right. Okay. So so breadstick is like this third class of of uh, types. You know, that the the. It's called an ellipsoid, a prolate ellipsoid shape, um, and You know, we think that we're seeing lots and lots of galaxies at early times that maybe in 3D are shaped like breadsticks. They're not like Hmm. nice circular disks. They're heavily flattened along a second axis. Um,
0: And
1: and, so what,
0: you know, so if we could fly close to one of these things and take a look at it, you know, like if we were like Andromeda close, um,
1: what would we see? That's a great question. So, um, so yeah, you can do a little thought experiment if you fly up to one of these, these, uh, these breadstick or cigar shaped galaxies in the early universe, you know, we think what you would see is lots and lots of other little galaxies, maybe uh, undergoing kind of, they're, they're on very radial orbits. So they're kind of undergoing um, in the process of undergoing mergers, essentially along a preferential direction. Um, So our standard thinking right now for why these galaxies are shaped like breadsticks is they are embedded in dark matter halos, right? Like we talked about for the Milky Way. Um, But the dark matter halos of these early galaxies, they're not like the relatively roundish dark matter halos of the Milky Way today. We think the dark matter halos of these early galaxies that are breadstick shaped are also Elongated. So there the dark matter halos are also like scaled up versions of like a breadstick-shaped ellipsoid. Um, and that dark matter halo's longest axis is oriented in the same direction as the long axis of the stars. And finally, this entire system we think is embedded in a dark matter um, cosmic web filament. Uh, so you, you talked about. You know we talked about um, clusters of galaxies before right and so these are found at like the intersections of cosmic web filaments uh, and filaments are you know where we think like the characteristic typical galaxy like the Milky Way like Milky Way progenitors like where where typical galaxies form they form in filaments and they make their way towards these clusters over cosmological timescales and so um, <clears throat>
0: back to that idea if, if i was looking at the at the galaxy andromeda distance away i wouldn't see like a a two-armed i don't know galaxy that would you know had a central bulge and then one arm leading forward you know in a straight line i would see like this giant collection of dwarf galaxies that are all together in a line merging and star forming and and beginning the process of coalescing together which is which is different from what you would have originally expected that it would be like they'd be coming together in a kind of spinning disc but you're seeing in fact it's like this weird line and and that matches the the larger scale structure of the universe cosmic web the the sort of the amount of the distribution of dark matter that's believed to be to be out there
1: yeah that's right and another really yeah. I mean, another really cool thing about this, so I wrote a paper about this in 2019 and it's how I got, I first became aware of, of this particular area, you know, of, of galaxy formation. So my, my advisors at the time, Joel Primack, Sandy Faber, David Koo and Avishai Dekel, you know, we had this idea that if galaxies, if these linear looking early galaxies were in fact, what I'm, what I'm saying that, That they're like these collections of little you know galaxies undergoing mergers along a preferential direction and they're they're embedded in these dark matter filaments well something else you might expect to see is actually these linear looking breadstick shaped galaxies may actually point towards one another in 3d um, if they're forming along you know if there's like multiple of these breadsticks forming along filaments and so if you take yourself back to earth and you look at the 2D projected sky, um, you know, we we expect that maybe in projection, these early galaxies on the sky are not going to be randomly oriented. They're going to maybe point towards one another on average. And this is something that we can, we'll be able to get a handle on and directly map out um, with the upcoming Roman Space Telescope in a few years
0: right. so, so, in other words, if these lines are the progenitors of the larger spiral galaxies, then the then the next step that you should see is these streams of stars crashing into each other and then actually beginning that star formation, sorry, beginning that that larger spiral galaxy formation. yeah, and I guess exactly. the the ones that are kind of trailing behind that are going through their star formation, they end up as those satellites that don't get fully consumed by the spiral
1: yeah that's right we don't know exactly how how um, one of these breadstick shaped things will turn into a spiral like the milky way um there's you know we we do have very high resolution simulations of the universe of individual galaxies like the milky way and their evolution you know over billions of years of cosmic time and these simulations um by, for example, Daniel Severino and Joel Primack and and Avishai Dekel and others, they do suggest um, that that there's some process, you know, in the beginning, these these galaxies are shaped like breadsticks, and then they continuously undergo mergers, and they form stars in their centers. So over time, you get an increase in the central mass density of stars. And during the breadstick phase, stars can actually go arbitrarily, pass arbitrarily through the center of, of the galaxy, which is in contrast to like a Milky Way spiral, right, where the stars are on circular orbits. They don't generally go through the center. They kind of just stay in circular orbits. Um, but in these breadsticks, you know, you have a growing mass density at the center of the distribution because you, know, you have mergers. St- maybe you have cold flows of gas towards the center that form stars. And so these, st- these stars that are on initially kind of radial orbits through the long axis through the center of the system, they might start to get deflected. Um, They may start to get deflected off of their original orbits because of the central mass density collection of stars. that's growing and the entire system may kind of puff up and, and how exactly that process then leads to the formation of a disc or a central bulge is, is not well understood at all. It's very Mm -hmm. complicated and maybe chaotic.
0: Well, I think of an analogy with like the Lagrange points, like think about the L4, L5 Lagrange points, which lead and trail the sun in the, in the solar system. And you get this very chaotic system of these objects orbiting around inside of it. But the way the torques work, if one of these objects starts to drift out or has a three body interaction and drifts outside of the, of where it is, it experiences a a torque that pushes it back into the region and and creates this sort of giant fluffy mass that is r- perfectly related to the gravity of both the sun and the earth but they're also trapped there and so you can sort of imagine that as these things are trying to escape the the larger dark matter strand is is sort of keeping things constrained it's 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 very bizarre i mean i think as you think about the shape of the stars you must just spend a lot of time thinking about the that invisible larger scale dark matter structure if that's driving it then you're seeing its echo its
1: reflection its you know shadow in stars yeah yeah no it's it's really exciting this is this is why we we want to do a couple follow up um studies uh and one of them i just mentioned you know earlier is we want to go in with the Roman Space Telescope in a few years and ask, do we actually see these galaxies tracing out like, you know, on huge scales, like these kind of strands, the filaments in projection on the sky at different distances from us? Because that would be a nice kind of smoking, almost smoking gun contest. Um, no one's ever detected strong, like these strong intrinsic alignment signals, as we call them in in, in the field. No one's ever detected them for like these low mass galaxies we've known for a few decades now that like the most massive, you know, red and dead ellipticals at the centers of clusters actually point towards the ellipticals at the centers of other clusters because uh, they retain their memory of their, you know, initial formation. Uh, And, and um, so that's one thing. Um, And then the other thing is we want to try to um, it's very challenging to do this But, you know, there's this kind of, um, there's this fundamental issue for individual galaxies. If you see any individual galaxy that looks like a linear structure and projection, no one can say, like from the James Webb imaging alone, is this elongated galaxy in projection, is it a circular disk in 3D? Is it an oval disk? Is it one of these breadstick shaped or cigar shaped things? Um, the the smoking gun way to test that is you actually have to get a spectrum of the starlight of this thing and that's super challenging because these things are so small they're so faint they're so far away. but if you can do that uh, and if you can detect um, the absorption lines uh, from the stars in these galaxies then you can actually tell what kind of orbits the stars are on. So if you have a circular disc seen edge on you know, you expect the stars to be on circular orbits. So you expect to see a rotation curve. One side will be, you know, moving away from us and one side will be moving towards us as the stars orbit on circles. Um, But that's literally impossible for, you know, if these galaxies are like highly, you know, breadstick shaped or surfboard shaped is another beach themed analogy I throw in. Because there we expect the stars to be on these highly elliptical radial orbits along the major axis. Um, And so we are starting to think about, you know, ways to constrain this with uh, existing telescopes like, of course, James Webb, but then also the Keck telescope in Hawaii. But I think uh, we really uh, need the next generation of 30 meter class telescopes, the the ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, uh, which will come online. You know, the European one may come online in 2029 before the end of this decade. And then the two, hopefully, fingers crossed, the two U.S. ones, the Giant Magellan Telescope and the 30-meter telescope will come online in the early 2030s.
0: So you must have done the calculation, though. You've got a proposal rattling around in your brain that says, I need this many hours on James Webb to measure, to get gather the spectra from one of these galaxies to measure the rotation curve, right? Yeah. What's that yeah, number? So for, How many hours so do you need?
1: So for I got some, some of I've got right- some
0: spare time on
1: James Webb. You can have it. How much do you need? Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, it's going to be uh, a several hours at least, um, because I think the you know the the real data that I want um, is uh, there's a there's an instrument on James Webb. It's called um, the near infrared spectrograph, uh, and it has a mode called the integral field unit mode, where essentially like you have a galaxy and Across the face of the galaxy, you can get spectra at many different points along the face of the galaxy, which lets you then, you know, if you can go deep enough um, and integrate for long enough, then you can get like the, you can get constraints on the orbits of the, well, what is the, um, the velocity, the velocity field of uh, the gas in the galaxy, which is an interesting constraint in and of itself, um, but it's gonna be very challenging to get it for the for the stars. So it's gonna be several hours, and we'll only be able to do it for the brightest, biggest ones.
0: Right, but I mean, several hours, that's fine, that's acceptable, I yeah. think, approved. Yes. You're welcome. Yeah, I, um, I would love
1: some of your, exp- your, your, yeah, your extra. time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no yeah. problem. Um, all right, so I wanna shift gears now and just talk about these large, web surveys in general i mean people are entranced by the idea of the hubble deep field that you took this telescope stared at what you thought was an empty piece of space and upturned tens of thousands of galaxies
1: so what is the equivalent of
0: that for web right now
1: yeah so i would say you know we have uh we have several surveys um Sears is one that I've been involved with. Um, There's there's a couple others that I've already been completed or nearly completed, like Jades and NG Deep, um, uh, that are going significantly deeper. So they're integrating for even longer than Sears uh, integrated for. These are great, but they're still relatively small areas in the sky. Uh, So there's other surveys also that are a little shallower, but they're trying to get You know, they're trying to cover us, you know, somewhat larger portion of the sky. So, for example, Cosmos Web. Um, And I think what we. We're going to see, you know, we're going to continue to see more and more of these like super, super deep, uh, you know, the the James Webb deep fields. Uh, Mm -hmm. But those are going to those are only going to be in a tiny fraction of the sky, just like the Hubble deep field, because it's so expensive. And I'm, I'm on a few of them, actually, you know, there are proposals every year for, for getting time. And this is like, I think, the first year where the um, astronomers at large put in uh, huge, we call them treasury proposals, uh, because we want to, you know, create the, this wealth of like data, set that, data sets that uh, imaging and spectroscopy that will, you know, serve the community for, 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 for years and years down the line. Um, so these like ultra super deep JWST deep fields that people are planning now, they're going to be able to detect, you know, redshift 15, 20 galaxies that James Webb was, was, was designed to do, right? Uh, you so, won't, you won't so, resolve those galaxies, but.
0: Well, I mean, give me a sense of that. I mean, I know that when web first came online a lot of people were making a lot of claims about the most distant galaxies that they were seeing and we were seeing numbers like redshift 17 you know numbers that are like two to three hundred million years after the big bang and things have settled down people have calibrated better and now we know we're more in the four hundred Million-year regime, and not in that in that earlier regime. What kind of time is involved? Like like when I think about Webb, and you know, they always talk about like, or when they think about Hubble, they talked about like how many hours it took, and how many orbits, and how many. You know, here's the field of view, and here's the the most distant galaxies that are being seen. So so give us a sense because I like Webb is so much faster than Hubble was, and yeah. so. Give me a sense of like, if you were to like take the telescope and point it at one spot in the sky, how long would you want to point it at that spot until you started to resolve those, those redshift 15
1: plus objects or detect them, not resolve them? Yeah. So just to give you a sense of scale, um, you know, I was, I was a member of one of the largest Hubble space telescope collaborations um, that kind of pooled together resources from the wider community to um, take up almost a thousand orbits of Hubble. Uh, wow. To, to create, you know, we always talk about the Hubble Deep Field, right? Because that's like the, the OG. Uh, but there's actually five. There's yeah. five Deep Fields um, that are in like non, you know, strongly crowded, non-strongly lensed regions. Um, so there's the Hubble Deep Field North, the Hubble Deep Field South, uh, and then there's the ultra deep survey, there's the extended growth strip, and then there's the cosmos field. Um, and each of these, right, if you go into each of these, these are five different fields on five different parts of the sky. Uh, Sears is in, actually, Sears observed um, uh, the extended growth strip part of this candle survey, the Cosmic Assembly Near Infrared Deep Extragalactic Legacy Survey from Hubble. Um, uh, so each of these five fields from Hubble, um, you know, that you're tiling observations because Hubble has a relatively small field of view. So you're tiling observations to create like a mosaic. Um, and for any individual part of that tile, it's about, uh, two months of observing time to get to the depths of Hubble. One, one, one object in the mosaic, one tile in the mosaic, Mm -hmm. that long it's about yeah it's about 50 days or so yeah wow for some of these yeah so that's about two months of observing time for one part of this bigger mosaic for yeah yeah from one of the five deep fields from candles now hubble like with sears right we went back to one of these deep fields the extended growth strip and uh for any individual part of our mosaic comparable to candles. It wasn't, it wasn't two months. It was less than an hour. <laughs> right. And with less than an hour, we actually see way more substructure yeah. than Hubble did. Um, which makes sense. I mean, you know, Hubble is a 2.4 meter, you know, um, telescope and James Webb is a 6.5 meter, So it's a bigger telescope, more light collecting area. Um, improve you know detector technology um so but that's just mind-blowing to me that you know 50 days versus 50 minutes and the stuff that we see with james webb is just way you know just way deeper now yeah
0: and well i remember we reported on on this it feels like about a year ago there was like versions of this and they were finding many more galaxies that are in the Hubble deep field like just already like without even trying it's already vastly surpassed the capabilities of the, of the the same regions of the Hubble deep field and these are tests these are just
1: like d- can we do this right yeah yeah exactly yeah and so yeah i mean the the like the limiting you know going back to detect you know your, the detection limits of your data right like the limiting magnitudes of some of these early JWST surveys are already comparable to if not deeper than 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 Hubble's. Uh, And you you can resolve a lot more substructure in some of these galaxies. So, you know, with Hubble or with James Webb and Sears, which again, is not the deepest data that we already have available compared to like JADES or NGD. But with Sears, you know, my paper, we did like these detection limit tests and we showed that we are going at least 100 times fainter. With, with Sears imaging in terms of like characterizing the outskirts of, of galaxies that are, you know, maybe existed 10 billion years ago um, compared to Hubble imaging. So,
0: But if you, if you just, st- you stared with this new capability, how, how long is a reasonable, no, not even a reasonable, how much is an outrageous amount of resolution to get? I mean, it, if 50 minutes gave you more than Hubble, what would 10, like there must be a limit is 10 hours enough for one piece of the sky, 20 hours. What's what's the point where you said, okay, this is we're hitting diminishing returns at this point.
1: Yeah, that's a great, um, great question. Um, yeah, I admit, I haven't thought about that too much. Uh, but, um, as people are starting to plan this, uh, you know, I think, I think at least trying to be as ambitious as we were with, with the original Hubble Deep Field, kind of staring at the same patch of sky for maybe yeah, several tens of hours straight uh, uh, to see how many more faint sources we can pick up, um, aka, yeah, I mean, very high redshift sources. I think that's definitely uh,
0: feasible. I mean, it's always a balance, right, between between depth and width. I mean, you could yeah. point at for one hour at a time and move your field of view, and you would reach yeah. a certain depth and a certain faintness of object, and you would be able to tell a story about the sky that would keep astronomers fed for a decade. But if you yeah. then – Doubled the time, triple the time, 10 times the time, that would allow you, give you less of a field of view, but you would see fainter objects. And, and I yeah. wonder, like I'm sure at some point someone is gonna have to make this call and say, okay, when we do the James Webb deep field, yeah. we get two hours per frame for the mosaic, or we get 10 hours per frame, or we want a hundred hours. Like, do you have any sense yeah. of, of where those diminishing returns? Has nobody done a paper on this? What? Where are the diminishing returns? Because they exist in Hubble. Like you must be deeply yeah. familiar with where the diminishing returns are for doing these kinds of observations with Hubble.
1: Yeah. Why does somebody yeah. know um, this for
0: James Webb?
1: Yeah, I know people are thinking about this. I don't. I don't think about the planning of you know the eventual James Webb deep fields myself. Um, but uh, certainly, um, you know, I think not only is there going to be trade offs between. Uh, like depth versus width of James Webb um, just given maybe our existing predictions for how many, you know, how we think the number density of galaxies evolves as a function of, of, of redshift time. There's also like kind of balancing what James Webb capabilities are currently with, you know, when it eventually overlaps with the Roman space telescope, because Roman I think is going to be the real player in terms of, wide field surveys, right? Because a single pointing with the Roman space telescope is equivalent to 100 Hubble deep fields. Uh, it won't go as maybe as deep as like James Webb, um, initially, but people are planning, you know, large community surveys with Roman. Um, and, and Roman is going to have near infrared capabilities, it won't be as sensitive as James Webb, because it's a smaller telescope, 2.4 meter, like Hubble. Um, but you want to I'm sure people wanna um are thinking about balancing you know upcoming facilities and then the coverage with James Webb.
0: But yeah, and it feels like that's like you're looking to do a why you know do the entire sky with Nancy Grace Roman, and then do one very specific part with say Webb, and then compare and say, okay, great. When we see stuff at the very detection limits with Roman, then we know that that means that there are, are these kinds of things in that region, right? Like it gives you, it's like your Rosetta Stone between the two regions. But I just wonder, like, if you just pointed Webb at one spot in the sky for ten hours, hundred hours, like, are you going to start to hit the like epic of reionization of are you oh, is, are you going to get a time when there's just like too much sky glow from from dust in the in the solar system
1: like i wonder what the limit is like what is the limit mm-hmm. of web yeah that's a really good question i haven't thought about that to be honest uh uh yeah no that's a that's a that's a good question um, okay, well, it's fine. If you, I mean, if you don't know the
0: answer; it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's weird. Yeah, it's. I'll I'll keep looking <laughs> because yeah. because it feels to me like like that. I mean, that question was asked with Hubble, and the answer was gravitational lenses. Mm. right that that the, right, the yeah. way we see deeper with hubble is we you, we look for natural telescopes those let us push to the very limits of what's capable and we're limited by the best gravitational lenses that we can find and the most interesting objects that are being lensed by those like and and a gravitational lens gives you whatever 10,000 times 30,000 times yeah. resolving power that hubble could do on its own and so you you're not going to be able to do better yeah but and, and you get spectra yeah. and you know yeah and yeah. and the same things but in theory the whole point of web was that it could do the kinds of things that hubble can't do directly. without the lensing yeah, without exactly. the lens it just sees it and so i just wonder if you just turn that thing on and let it run at 10 hours yeah. 100 hours At a certain point you go you know what? we're not getting any more information out of this picture <laughs> right yeah we can't yeah
1: yeah that's a really good point i yeah i, I truly have i haven't thought about that uh, like what are the limits like just from if you have so much data that you just can't get at that point. Yeah. just becomes like your, yeah.
0: Um, and it might be we won't find out for a while because the telescope is so oversubscribed, right? That there's a million things to look at that are more interesting. You don't really care about what the ultimate limits are. But, you know, I wonder yeah. what questions could be answered. Because then there's like, you know, there were originally plans, like say the Origins Telescope that was going to yep. follow on to Webb. And that was going to be an even larger telescope that would take you even further back in time. Yeah. it's. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's being mashed into Louvoir and and Habex and you're creating this Habitable Worlds Observatory, which is yes, I can't wait for that. But yeah. we also lose the gigantic infrared telescope next generation. So,
1: yeah, yeah, I actually just gave a, a a talk um so NASA was interested in, you know, what can the Habitable Worlds Observatory do for this kind of science of constraining the the 3D shapes of these early you know, Milky Way ancestor galaxies. And I mean, it's going to be insane. I'm a little bummed that that the 2020 decadal survey recommended, like there were, there were two versions of the habitable worlds observatory, which is itself kind of now, a you know, the best of Havax and Louvoir, as you said. Uh, and Louvoir in particular, there was like a 15 meter version. And then there's an eight meter version. Um, and the decadal said, you know, given the constraints on like, uh coming up with the technology the engineering challenges and the funding challenges we can only recommend the 8 meter version um but even with the 8 meter version you know you'll get like 100 parsec resolution in galaxies that existed 10 billion years ago so like redshift 2 II, redshift 3 milky way progenitors you get 100 megaparsec 100 100 parsec resolution um And, you know, you'll be able to like detect individual like star forming regions um, with like the level of detail that, you know, we expect for some nearby galaxies today. Uh, And so, you know, that's gonna offer important clues on like, well, yeah, what is the 3D structure of these early galaxies and how do stars form? You know, the stars that we see today in the Milky Way that are 10 billion years ago, where were they forming? In the Milky Way progenitor right at redshift two,
0: and so when people ask me about the the, the when we're, are we going to see the James Webb deep field
1: yeah.
0: I mean there's cosmos there's there's tears there's yeah. was it cosmic cosmic web there's there's jade so there are a bunch of smaller surveys but but according to you, that there is a group that is starting to think about what does our yeah. version of the of the Hubble Deep field look like? And yeah, it'll get proposed and then it'll be run and it'll come out. So we're, we're still a couple of years away from that. Would you say?
1: Yeah. I I would say we're at least two to three years away because yeah, this is the first cycle where I've seen, you know, the proposals were due last November. Um, and you know, I'm part of some of these and, uh, you know, they're still being evaluated by NASA and the space telescope science Institute. Um, we'll get decisions probably in the next month. And then it will take, you know, a year to schedule the observations. Um, but even these, right, the the proposals that were submitted and may get accepted this cycle, these are still like individual teams of, OK, 100 astronomers each. But if you kind of go back and think about a survey like candles on the Hubble deep field uh, on, on Hubble, right, um, like there were originally two big teams of 100 astronomers each. And they actually, uh, they both put in a proposal to do essentially very similar types of science, You know, go ex- extremely deep, you know, 50 days of integration for individual parts of the you know, mosaic um, of these five deep fields in Hubble. Uh, and NASA and the Space Telescope Science Institute actually said, well, you guys should come together and you know, we'll award you both jointly the time and that's how we got these five Hubble deep fields from candles and also the frontier fields are under, another big thing, as you said, which were, which were targeting strongly lensed, you know, parts where uh, where, where you have massive foreground galaxy clusters. Um, and so we're probably, we may end up seeing something like that in the next two, three years, where lots of individual teams want to, you know, observe their favorite field, but you know, we might need like a community kind of the community come together and say, well, we'll have one big collaboration, and we'll all share the time, and then everyone will benefit from the data. So the data will become immediately public, uh, and we'll also provide you know to the community our our, our you know our codes, our models, um, our properly reduced processed imaging. So then the community you know like this this move towards open source science. Uh, the community can, can do the science that it wants to do.
0: Oh, it sounds and fascinating. I'm really looking forward to being able to report on, on that. So, and hopefully, you know, we're just a couple of years away from that. Well, Raj, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Congrats on the work that you've done so far. And I think, you know, we're still only a couple of years into this whole process with this amazing telescope. So the
1: best is yet to come. Yes. Thank you so much, Fraser. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and I'll look right. out for your, uh, for your future podcast. Okay. Thanks. All right.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview. I'm going to give you some more thoughts in a second, but first I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Paul Rohrbach, Abe Kingston, Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, and Tony Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Chiplet, Modzo, George, David Giltonen, Androm Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the master of the universe level and all of our other supporters on Patreon. Okay. So stop asking already. We got the answer, which is that we are in the initial stages of the preparation and plans for a proper James Webb Space Telescope deep survey. Now, there are a lot of existing surveys. There's the Jade Survey. There's the Sears Survey. There's the Cosmos Webb Survey. And each one of those is serving one tiny part in the sky. And already they are turning out more galaxies in the fields that they're doing than giant swaths of the Hubble Deep Field. And this is just the appetizer for what is yet to come. But right now, all these groups are coming together. There may be multiple surveys in different regions of the sky, maybe one for empty spot, one for a place that has a lot of gravitational lenses, maybe something else interesting, or maybe the groups will be merged together into one super group, and then they will apply for time together. But when you think about how Webb was able to do in minutes, what took Hubble days, that what we're going to get out of these surveys should be just as iconic and as memorable as what we saw with the Hubble deep field. So I am really excited for what the future holds. I had a really fascinating interview with Dr. Adam Reese, who has also been using the James Webb Space Telescope, but to measure the distances to galaxies with more precision and accuracy than anyone has ever done before. So if you want more about James Webb, here's a link to that interview. All right, we'll see you next time.